Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Hey friends, welcome back. It's How to Eat an Elephant. Except I guess I should be, should be welcoming myself back because you guys have been together since I have been here. This is true. <laughs> You're so right. True. I, have, I have rejoined the land of the living. <laughs> we Super did miss you. I know. We missed you. I feel like we may have said collusive things without you, but I'm not going to tell you what they were. You'll have to go back and listen to them. I assumed as much. I was prepared for you saying collusive things. What I wasn't prepared for is missing the climax. It does feel like that, doesn't it? We were talking about that. (laughs) Which was these are some serious payoff chapters. And then and then I missed the discussion of Andre's death. Are you kidding me? We definitely want to give you a chance to shoot your shot about Andre, etc. I just want to review the uh, consensus that Emily and I reached, which is even on his deathbed, Andre never does discover. A good attitude. He maintains his piss poor attitude all the way through, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is kind of funny. <laughs> it's kind of true. I mean, it felt like Tolstoy was trying for something, and that maybe his his tried and true categories for looking at the world are finally starting to fail him. Uh, here, faced with the reality of beloved characters dying, I mean, I don't know. Like the the idea that your brush with death is a battle that you're losing, and in losing it, you rise above human concerns, and the things of the earth cease to trouble you, and all that nonsense. I I don't. First of all, don't know if that's true. Not having faced death myself, but then secondly, it sure didn't make for a satisfying scene. And so one wonders why Tolstoy had to go there. That's kind of how I felt. He's definitely writing with the idea uppermost in mind as opposed to the characterization. You know, some authors write with the plot in mind. And I think Tolstoy has done that in the past in this novel and definitely in his other novels. He's written for the story and then the ideas come out of the story. But he is all the way into make crunching his plot to fit into his ideas right now. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. It felt like Andre's death was in service to the philosophy that Tolstoy is trying to get across rather than here is the perfect ending for this character arc. And I, I know that Tolstoy can do better. We've seen it earlier in this in this book. And I was a little disappointed I was I was a little disappointed relationally for the for example the ending of Natasha and Andre it felt a little anticlimactic and I don't know maybe that's intentional maybe we're going to see that like kind of sewn into a beautiful hole by the end of the novel but that felt disappointing Yeah I was bummed about it straight up I was bummed about it I felt like I was supposed to be really moved like it was dramatic yeah. everything about it was dramatic and and I felt like Tolstoy was looking at me and saying isn't this great? Look, look, look how I did yeah. this. And, and, and he's trying to tug on my heartstrings and he's doing it in a way that just misses. Like he just totally missed me. 
And so I didn't feel the way I was supposed to feel. And mm. it kind of left with a bad taste in my mouth. Well, one of the things I, I am still stuck on thinking back on that chapter is the little conversation that he has in his mind about love. And the fact that love is everything to him. Love is the reason for living. It's what hinders death. Love, he goes so far as to say love is God. And yet, at the same time, he has decided that loving one person is inadequate. And so it kind of turns away from the power in our our human experience. He, he basically says it's not, the, the human love is not qualified as as the love that makes life worth living. And I don't know if that's, I'm not satisfied by the end of his thought on that one. If he ended with God is love and we get to experience a relational um, experience with love through God, that might satisfy me. But instead he said, love is God and then divorces himself from yeah, all personal big experience. Big difference between those two That's a really big difference. It's a little Eastern feeling. And maybe that's why it feels disconnected to me because I am a child of the West. But I don't know. Were you guys disappointed by that? Am I missing something? It reminds me of, I think it's when Andre is first wounded and he is wrestling through his bitterness with Natasha and Anatole. And he he sees Anatole and he comes to this realization that he loves them and he's forgiven them in his heart. And he says something to the effect of, human love isn't adequate. It's what I'm experiencing is divine love. It's not my own love. It's I'm like a conduit yeah. for something bigger than me. That was satisfying. That was a satisfying articulation of the point. And I feel like that's probably what he's trying to get at here. But I do think the reason that moment was powerful to us was because it was connected to the relationship of individual characters and I just think that's the way human beings are wired. It's we reach the great ideas by means of the small things, by means of the individuals. Well, and the incarnation is proof of that, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And here he's trying, it's a little bit like he's trying to do the opposite. He's now he's trying to meditate on the great things and we feel a little distance mm -hmm. from it because he's not paying as close attention to yeah. his his individual characters. He even references Karagin again. Uh, he, he thinks back, Andre does, to that scene where he forgave Karagin and he wonders if he's still alive. He's tormented by that question, mm -hmm. but he doesn't ask it and continues to divorce himself from the physical world, which might also just be a dying man coming to grips with the fact that he can't be part of this world anymore. Right, which is true. There's, I, It's not that I don't think that there's not a lot of truth in what he's doing here. But I do think that there is an element of it that is unsatisfying, which is why when we turned to part two, you guys, we the whole the How to Eat an Elephant crew got together yesterday for a in-person reading session. They're super fun. Uh, we all sat together and read to ourselves. We made and a French press. It was we, awesome. It was, it was great. Yeah, we had a little afternoon How to Eat an Elephant time. And Megan and I were starting at part two, chapter one, which is technically what this podcast is about. <laughs> but Ian was behind, so he was reading the big juicy chapters while we started this one. <laughs> so Ian is having this really like powerful... Slash disappointing moment. Experience. <laughs> and Megan and I are over here like, Ugh, <laughs> uh, like for example, <laughs> we, we crack open our books to part two, chapter one. And the first sentence that you read is, 
The totality of causes of phenomena is inaccessible to the human mind, period. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'll be in my trailer. I know. I'll see you guys later. <laughs> I will be in my trailer. In the margin, my book says, again? Question mark. Oh my gosh. It feels like Tolstoy doesn't trust us to be good readers. We're almost to page 1000, everyone. And this is the same thing he's been saying for a thousand pages. We got it. Oh, anyway, so Emily and I are losing our marbles about it. We're so frustrated and so boring, just to tell the honest truth. And Ian, we're talking over it. Like, oh, I can't believe we're, what does he think? We're stupid readers. And Ian's like, you guys, please, Andre is dying. <laughs> you just show some respect. Trying to accompany Andre to the grave here. You we guys. were really disrespectful. I'm really sorry. <laughs> Well, I don't know if that contributed to the fact that it was a, um, a, a disappointing scene to me. But I will agree that this morning when I woke up and read the thing you were making fun of, I met equal amounts of fun of it. I'm myself. glad to know that. This is completely ridiculous. There is something new about it, though. So we, look, we have five chapters here at the beginning of part two, during which time Tolstoy undertakes, as he often does, to pan historians' efforts to explain a particular series of events. That's really all that happens here. And he does it over and over again. And he, he paints Kutuzov in a particular way. And we don't even get to the action by the time that this section is over. I mean, talk about your useless five-chapter segments of, of War and Peace. But I noticed something, which is that even though we've been over this conversation with Tolstoy a million times, and he said the same thing over and over again, it's even more naked here that he thinks he's the smartest person on God's green earth. He actually, he actually excludes himself by setting himself up as the teacher of everyone on how to do everything relating to thinking about human history and life. He actually considers himself the only person not bounded by these rules. I think if, if anything happens in this five chapters, it's that he, un, he cuts his own legs out from underneath himself. That's what I think. It does feel a little bit like the wheels are falling off the bus <laughs> as this comes to Well, a the wheels have gone too far around. Let's just say that. <laughs> but I do think that, believe it or not, there is actually a slight difference to this essay than previous essays on the totality of causes. Could it be in that second sentence right after the first one? Exactly. Yeah. Right. We've, we've read that first sentence just about a million times, but the second sentence tells us, the need to seek causes has been put into the soul of man. And he ends that paragraph by, for the first time, giving us hope that even though we cannot encompass the totality of causes with our mind, if we let go of our desire to hold on to our little precious ideas of causes and effects, if we're willing to humble ourselves before history, we might see part of what governs causes. We might actually see some of the laws. See this? Okay, so I think you can look at this in a positive and a negative light, and I would love to know how you guys perceive yeah. it. But for me, this is the most annoying part of all, because... I'm just going to read it, the, the part that you just eloquently explained, Emily. There are not and cannot be any causes of a historical event, except for the one cause of all causes. But there are laws that govern events, which are partly unknown, 
partly groped for by us. The discovery of these laws is possible only when we wholly give up looking for causes in the will of one man, just as discovering the laws of planetary movement become possible only when people gave up the notion that the earth stands still. By which he finally shows his hand and says, you know, it's what everyone assumes to be true, which is that there might be a God and there might not be, and we all kind of want to know what's happening. That's it? That's your big observation, Tolstoy? Are you serious? We are 987 pages into this tome of a novel explaining this moment in history, and you're going to finally unravel your way back out to where we started? Which is human mind, small, God mind, big. Well, come on, dude! I will say, though, <laughs> that he hasn't always acknowledged, or he hasn't always let us into his assumption that there is a big God mind guiding things. Right, that there is a hand, there's Fair a enough. law, there's a will outside of us that guides us. And in the middle of this little essay, he says, the will of the historical hero not only does not guide the actions of the masses, but is itself constantly guided. And even though he's beaten a dead horse of don't, you know, don't pin all of the causes of history on one historical hero, he does say more clearly than he's ever said before, that will of that man is guided by someone. You know, so in other words, it seems to me at the end of this essay, he's saying there is a will of God outside of us that guides our actions. We just can't know it. Yep, you're right. That That's the positive way to read it. The positive way to read it is that he's coming out of all of his psychosis into a statement of of some sort of divine will, which I think is great. I support you. It just annoys me that it was 987 pages of meandering before we got there, for Pete's sake. Totally. Totally, dude. Well... There's a cause of all causes, but let us not be confused and assume that the most primordial approximation appears as the will of the gods. We're, we're not allowed. There no. is a will. There is a will, capital W, out there, and it might be God. But, oh, human, when an event happens, don't label it as the will of God. Yeah, the one cause of all causes is necessarily opaque. Well, yeah. That was super annoying as I was reading along. I've got question marks and underlines and what the heck's in my uh, margin. He says there's the one cause of all causes, obviously, and then doesn't tell us what he thinks that is. He's so withholding. Right. And I, I honestly think he's, I think this is a vanity project. That's what I'm coming to believe here. As much as I love it, as much as it's one of the great stories ever written, he's setting out to say about the world, it's impossible for you to understand. Note the you, though. I get it. Me, Tolstoy, I get it, and I will explain it to you at length, and the main focus of my explanations is going to be to convince you that you aren't as smart as me. That's how it feels to me right now. It does feel that way. I don't know that that's what he meant, but I felt it too. It felt, this passage in particular, this five-chapter section, felt like Tolstoy liking to hear himself talk and finding a couple different examples of ways to say the same thing again that made him feel smart. Yeah, but then, okay, let's go one step further, though. And I'm, I'm really not trying to, to belabor the point, but he's the historical circumstance that he chooses to make a palette for this idea is the retreat from Moscow to Tarotino, which history evidently has elevated as a work of military genius in which Kutuzov backs his forces in a less obvious way to a particular place where they are prepared to flank the enemy and um, destroy Napoleon and rout him out of Russia. And in particular, coming after the the Battle of Borodino, which is um, 
it's difficult to decide whether that's a victory or not, given how heavy the casualties were on both sides. Given the loss of Moscow and its subsequent burning to the ground, boy, it would take a genius to win. And yet the Russians do. And so history looks back and says, Kutuzov is a genius. This retreat was an absolute work of military brilliance, etc. Tolstoy comes in and says, no. <laughs> That's literally what he does. He sits there and he says, okay, look, no, it isn't. It was obvious. Everything about it was obvious. It was obvious for these nine reasons. Now, I'm not taking issue with his nine reasons for the, that it's obvious. It makes sense. It's, it's prescient historical analysis. But hasn't he just gotten done telling us that historical analysis is a complete dead end? And does he not contradict himself by turning around immediately? And first of all, saying, I don't understand how this could be a work of genius, which is such a such an arrogant thing to say. Like if all of history, if all other historians look at Kutuzov and say, this guy was a genius for Tolstoy to come along and say, I don't see any genius in this is just him beating his chest i think i think it's just him beating his chest well either that or here's the the a positive reading um either that or he is patterning what we can do as historians look back and see the event in its entirety which we only can do when it's been accomplished and already become past we can look at it and say here's what happened but he does do that in a snide way. He even says at one point, anyone, even a stupid 13-year-old boy, would have no difficulty figuring out that this was the most advantageous. It was the obvious. It was like a ball rolling down a hill for things to turn out the way that they did. He can say that because the thing is already passed and complete, and he's aware of that. He's self-conscious, but he is snide at the same time. And also strangely specific. A 13-year-old boy? Emily and I were laughing about that. Is it that his son was giving him trouble that <laughs> day and he just wrote him in for spite? I don't That's know. hilarious. Emily, what do you think about all of this? Um, complaints aside, I do think I see what he is getting at. And sometimes I think we're just dealing with a man whose brain was too big and frustrated himself. And got way up in his head and uh, is trying so hard to explain himself that he's afraid that he's not coming across clearly. And I do see, like, I, I drew the distinction between the will of the gods and the cause of all causes before. But, like, I do understand. I think I understand what he means. As in this example, this is a helpful example because we're, we're Americans and don't necessarily have a stake in this between the Russians and the, the French in this battle one could say the Russians won that was the will of God. We've seen this happen in our own history a million times. The result is that God favors the Russians and he disfavors the French. The ergo, the Russians are better than the French. Or their or their cause was just or something. Exactly. Right. Uh, oh yes, it, it makes it causes us to carry assumptions about the purity of causes, mm -hmm. uh, motivations, um, what God loves and who God loves, and I think that's the behavior that Tolstoy is warning us against. Yes, there is a will at work here, probably even a divine one, but don't you go into this with all of your assumptions about what that means that divine will cares about or is trying to do with this you know yeah which is which gets him into difficult philosophical territory because absent explicit christianity and the notion of the of the sovereignty and goodness of god in addition to him being the the prime mover 
Tolstoy is advocating a nihilistic worldview. You're walking around in a world that is, or at least deterministic. You're walking around in a world that is is going to do what it is going to do, and to even try and ascribe causes to things or to penetrate it with your own mind is impossible and wrong. And so... Right. And we have mentioned this before. This is the accusation that's leveled against Tolstoy time and again, that he is nihilistic and deterministic and fatalist. However, I do think we always have to hold up now, and now we have it, the example of Pierre and, and Platon, who right. who demonstrates for us, because I think that Pierre... When that he, whole scene was great. I wasn't here for that, but you weren't, I loved it. One of the things we talked about was that Pierre actually comes into prison carrying all of those assumptions that we're leveling at Tolstoy. Mm -hmm. He is feeling deterministic. He is feeling nihilistic and he is pretty sure that there, the specific line is something like he looked around and saw that it was no one's fault. Mm -hmm. There was no meaning to anything. And he, he goes into despair. He's at the lowest he's ever been. And there's something about his interaction with this simple man who teaches him how to eat a potato that changes that. There's a shift in the way that he sees the world that takes him from nihilistic despair to feeling finally fulfilled and satisfied. Yeah, you're right. And I, I agree actually i would like to i would much prefer to finish the novel with that tone and with those ideas and with that particular thematic lens and i think it's totally valid there is another there's a there's a flip side to it though which is that how many times have we seen this happen to pierre <laughs> how many times as he has he veered wildly from complete despair to all encompassing joy how many times have his eyes snapped open to the real truth that's true but i think I would counsel us not to be cynical about Pierre. I think he might be the weather vane of the audience where um, Tolstoy's philosophy is concerned. And the last thing that we've heard from him so far, as he sits in prison, unaware of the fact that all of his hopes and dreams could come true if he could get free. Uh, you know, if he loves Natasha, she's finally free. He doesn't know that. If he doesn't love Helene, she's dead. He doesn't know that. He's free. Like, a lot of possibilities are completely outside the scope of his imagination. And yet, because of this experience with Platon, he says um, that he felt the previously destroyed world was now arising in his soul with a new beauty on some new and unshakable foundations. Pierre is the most shakable person that we've ever seen. Absolutely. And he's never, ever been described to us as... Uh, possessing an idea that would make him unshakable, a foundation really upon which his life could be built. And we're given that. So that might be the answer to, to the very understandable cynicism that we could be feeling at this point in the novel. Yeah. And I, I do, I think I can see both sides of it and I'm trying to hold them both in an open hand. I just want to make sure that we articulate the logical frustrations that I'm sure I'm not the only oh, one no, feeling. Oh no, you're definitely not. No, I feel them too. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a well-documented uh, academic complaint against with this Tolstoy. novel. Yeah. No, I love the Pierre. Oh, man. I, I wish I'd been here for the conversation about Pierre and Platon. Also, do you think Platon is oh, buddy, supposed to be You should Plato? have heard how Plato. many yeah. different pronunciations <laughs> we bandied about, sometimes consciously, sometimes Platon. unconsciously. Platon? Is it French? said this on air. That's what the internet said, yes. The internet said it's French? Remember what? You forgot. Well, no, I didn't forget. We I wasn't there. Yeah. <laughs> it just felt wrong. Like to swallow the end like like in a French pronunciation, and yet this is a Russian man and they're in battle against the French. It just felt wrong, you know?
I mean, I could see Tolstoy giving him a French name to emphasize, you know, the brotherhood of all man and stuff. Oh, I hadn't thought about that, Ian. Thank God you're back. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. Let's keep let's keep moving through this section. Not that there's a whole lot. I mean, we've kind of talked about the main thing, but I, I let's talk about Kutuzov specifically for a minute because here we have Tolstoy. He says to us, "Hey, listen, just to demonstrate that the 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 truth of what I'm saying that nobody actually knew what was going on. No one was responsible for this retreat. It just happened like a ball rolling down a hill and it turned out well. It could just as easily have turned out poorly. Look, I'll prove to you that no one knows what's up." And he documents um, a series of exchanges, an exchange between Napoleon and Kutuzov, and an ex- the, and that one serves to demonstrate that Kutuzov is doing his level best to make sure no battle happens at all because he actually He's alone in all of the people in the world, as far as I can tell, according to Tolstoy. He's alone as the only person who, who understands what Tolstoy is trying to say and is only giving his judgments after the fact because he understands that the world will be what it will be and his job is to ride it out and provide some stability while the world gets on with being what it will be, right? By understanding what Tolstoy is saying, he understands this inevitability, the fact that it's necessary, right? right. That phrase comes up again. It's necessary that he try and hold off the army as long as he can because no battle would be necessary. And yet a point will come when it is necessary that they have a battle and it'll be out of his hands. Exactly. And but he also persists in claiming that Borodino was a victory. Which uh, I I won't harp on this. Slightly ironic. That's all. That's all I'm going to say. It's I think it's funny that he says there are no heroes. No one understands what's going on. Everyone's being pushed around by fate. And anyone that says Kutuzov is a military genius for this retreat doesn't know what they're talking about. Also, let me tell you all the ways that Kutuzov is a military genius. Yeah, I think that too. Importantly, though, we come to find out that Kutuzov is actually against the action that saves the the Russian military. Right. That's where I was trying to get to, is is to the idea that, that eventually Kutuzov's hand is forced. And... Even then, once his hand has been forced and he gives the order, it still doesn't happen when he says it should. Everyone ignores him and wastes an entire day not following orders and refuses to attack. And so they have to do it the next day. Well, and I was in that in that conversation caught off guard by how Kutuzov's self-image is affected. He's so angry that they have ignored his orders for all of their little political reasons within the ranks and that he's been made to look a fool. And I don't think I've ever seen him in a state quite like that. One of the things that Tolstoy seems to respect about him is that he doesn't consider himself a great man. He is aware of his his position in a gigantic uh, multiplicity of causes and he kind of lets things happen. And yet here he tries to do something. It is ignored it's, you know, fatalistically determined that that wouldn't work for him. And he's so angry. I wonder um, what Tolstoy is trying to tell us in that, that even Kutuzov is a man and thinks too much of himself. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, and I don't mean to be cynical. And Emily, I want to let you do your point here because I'm sure it's going to be better than mine. Because what I have to say about that is at this point, he has turned completely around 180 degrees and said opposite stuff so many times in the space of 10 pages that I'm sick and tired of looking for some greater orchestration here. I mean, 
You told me that no one should consider the retreat the product of anyone's will, and anyone that says Kutuzov is a genius is a moron. Then you told me that Kutuzov is the only man alive who believed Borodino was a victory, which in fact was true. It was a victory. Then you're trying to tell me that Kutuzov is waiting mightily. He understands that there's, that there's going to be inevitability at some point. The inevitability comes... And then you smack Katuzov on the nose. You boop him. You say, get out of here, old man. Katuzov loses his marbles. And then things go on being inevitable again. I mean, it sure looks to me like he's just trying to stir the pot and say, guys, it's chaos out here. I Tell me he's saying something more Emily should that. go first because Emily's got a, a point she's been cut off Emily's a million had, times. So I'll go after you. Go I've ahead, Emily. I've been talking over her. I think that the key to understanding this passage comes with defining the word significance. We're told that Kutuzov's merit consisted not in some strategic maneuver of genius, as they call it, but in that he alone understood the significance of what was happening. Where is that? I want to underline that. And I think uh, that's page 990. And I think we have to be very careful here with our terminology because he does not mean any kind of logical understanding. Kutuzov has not grasped with his mind the causes and effects and properly properly calculated any kind of outcome. He contradicts that because Kutuzov wants to do the wrong thing, actually. So he's not, he's not engaged in any strategic maneuver of genius. But there's something that he understands. There's this something else. There's this significance that he understands. The result is that he is able to be used by the forces to ultimately um, allow the proper outcome to happen. But part of that uh, experience is that he is, um, he believes the wrong thing and he gets in the way and his own prejudices get in the way and his own um, offense at being made a fool is all part of this lump of causes. That's um, that is using him as a conduit for this proper outcome. And so even though he has not grasped with his mind the proper strategy, because we can't do that, and the and as a result, he he's wrong about a lot of stuff, he is able to tap into something. And it's that deeper something that seems to be what Tolstoy admires in him, even if he he does some foolish things here. And is that deeper something just a humility? A humility before a cause that's un- inexplicable? I think so. I-, I think it has something to do with that image of coming to understand the motion of the planets around him, right? He he is not fixed on the idea that the Earth is still. Which is a, it's a really interesting image, right? I, I take it to mean that that you... Question your own, question the evidence of your own senses. Here I am standing on the earth. It's immovable. But in order to understand planetary movement, I have to recognize that I'm hurtling through the air, orbiting something else, right? I have to question what seems to me obvious and d- disbelieve the evidence of my own senses. Is that is that how you guys took it as well? Yes. I was also confused, though, because when I think of movement and stillness, it immediately uh, calls to mind the metaphor of agency versus passivity, which I think is also something Tolstoy is always on about. So the fact that he says, we've got to acknowledge that all the planets are swirling around us and that Earth is not standing still. 
that you're a cause along with the rest of everything? You're moving too? I don't know. Maybe that complicates matters too much. Oh, we could hardly complicate them more than Tolstoy. <laughs> I know. I do think that's on Tolstoy if that's too complicated. <laughs> yeah, it's on Tolstoy. Emily, what were you going to say? Well, just that the th- the Earth as center model kind of assumes that the Earth is the one moving the things around it. And so I think the great that this is the great man theory. The great man assumes that he the things move around him, whether he's the one moving them or they're moving because of him. And either way, it's about what's at the center. And, and Tolstoy is trying to explain to us that that is actually the wrong model. We are not at the center. This is why... <laughs> I'm going to go on a rabbit trail here. This is why I get a little, I have some concerns about um, us admiring the, what, which is the model I'm going to sound I which is the scientific model where the earth is at the center. The, who was Our- the Copernican theory? No, he was, he was the one, the sun. In any case, this medieval model has a lot of beauty to it and it has reemerged as a a topic of study and and is held up as this beautiful thing which is like there's some truth to it and there's a lot of beautiful metaphor in it but at the heart of the metaphor is this idea that the earth is at the center of the movement of the cosmos and there i that's not true (laughs) um we've have found out scientifically that that isn't true and I think that this metaphor of the earth not being at the center of the cosmos is actually it carries a lot of philosophical truth to it as well that is really important. Like on the one hand, I've heard it argued that it displaced us and um, as a result, this is why nihilism took over because we don't see ourselves or like there's no meaning to it all anymore or whatever. A human race sized pouting match that we're not the center of the universe. Yeah, and I like I can see that on the one hand and on the other hand, like I Tolstoy is trying to get at this greater truth, which is that okay, if we're not the center of the universe, then who is? It's this cause of all causes and he's moving us along with everything else for his own good purpose. Yeah. Yeah. I that like really it. helps. I think that actually makes me consider this um a consistent philosophy in a way that a moment ago it looked like what the heck this is a jumble we're always just a a sentence or two away from him being very obvious and yet he will not give it to us yeah yeah i agree i i like it emily i i choose to let you lead through that part because (laughs) otherwise i'm just gonna get madder and madder even though i don't know anything about science right (laughs) it's not it's not that it's not that i agree with the science i do happen to think that the earth is orbiting the sun but anyways um no what i mean is that this thematic reading gives me more faith in tolstoy that he's going somewhere that i want to go alongside him but it it is hard for me right now because i do think philosophically this feel it's it feels like a vanity project it reads like a vanity project and when it comes right around to it he often surfaces and says something just brain goringly obvious and that bothers the heck out of me but he also sometimes says something really beautiful like at the end of his little kutuzov or maybe in the middle of his little Kutuzov passage, I think it's before Kutuzov loses his marbles and has a temper tantrum, um, when Kutuzov has received a letter from the sovereign slapping his hand and basically saying, why don't you attack? You're, you're falling down on all your responsibilities. 
And before he's even received that letter, the army has decided to attack without Kutuzov's agency, and it has turned out just the way the sovereign wanted. And he says at the end of that passage, Kutuzov blessed the accomplished fact. I think that is a really beautiful way to summarize what he's hoping we get from Kutuzov's character, that he, of all of these people, turns to look back on the fact that with or without him, things have turned out this way, and his attitude is to bless the accomplished fact rather than rage impotently. And maybe that's what we're supposed to take from his character. I hope so. I want to take that. I love that. That's super well articulated. It reminds me of my, I mean, it's it's one of my favorite ways to look at, at what the what the life of faith is actually. We can't look into the future. That's not something given to us as human beings. And so if we're supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus, as the saying goes, and walk through life in faith, the only place we can do that is in the evidence of his work, which is behind us in our past. And so we turn our backs resolutely on the future, gaze at the works of Jesus in our past, and walk backwards. And that's the that's the life of faith. And it, it sounds to me like that's what you're suggesting Tolstoy is on about here, which I think is beautiful. But I don't discount everything that you're saying about him. War and, war and peace. I was just talking to Megan yesterday about how it reads differently than Anna Karenina from the way I remember encountering Anna Karenina, which is the one I read first. The, he's definitely, I think he is in the way of himself in this book in a way that he hasn't been. In, in the other work that I've read from him, um, and which makes it like, which makes it frustrating because the story is amazing. It's, it's a, his characters are beautiful and what he's trying to do is sympathetic here, but also it just makes it really human. And maybe this is why it's, it's great. We're seeing his mind, his brilliant mind on display, but we're also seeing his humanity, his, his naked humanity is coming out as well. Well, you too. I, it amazes me that you managed to to wring something interesting to me out of those five <laughs> chapters. I'm just I'm in awe of both of you. Thank you for welcoming me back to the show. I'm proud to be here. And um, goodness, let's get this let's get this thing. We over. are Want rocketing to? towards page <laughs> one thousand, and I feel like we should have a little party, maybe some champagne, when we finally reach that page. Well, I just we totally should have a thousand page party. We should I have a thousand page idea. party. That's a great idea. I've never read. I'm a so book mad this at long. Tolstoy for so many reasons right now. So many reasons. For example, he has completely distorted my sense of reality. <laughs> In my mind, we're almost done with this novel. I know. Um, we are. We are the length of a longer than average no, don't novel say that. from the end of this novel. We are. No, we are. surely there are. Footnotes. We are done reading this novel. There are so on page many end notes. Twelve hundred and twenty-four. Twelve hundred and twenty-four pages. All right. We're at page nine ninety-seven. Okay. So we have more than two hundred pages of. But reading. But two hundred pages, man. We read two hundred pages, no problem these days. Compared to a thousand pennies. <laughs> okay. Well, thank thank all of you listeners for joining us on this journey. Uh, if you're just joining now. Don't hesitate to look back through the old discography here. We've got some really cool episodes behind us that we'd love for you to participate in. We also have done, we've been faithfully doing um, volumes and recaps. So if you don't want to go five chapters at a time through the entire list, you don't have to. You can listen to a couple of recaps to catch up and join us for the end of this novel. As always, I think you both are brilliant, and I'm really, really proud that you are with me on this journey. We are glad you're back. We really missed you last time. You're here. <laughs> Until next time, friends, bon appétit. Bon appétit. Bon appétit.
Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.